Good morning. My name is Mark McLean. I'm privileged to serve as one of the elders here at Grace, and it's a great privilege to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. Richard Blackaby. Uh, Dr. Blackaby serves as the president of Blackaby Ministries International. Perhaps you see the connection. Um, and he has been serving with them for quite some time. He speaks internationally and nationally about Experiencing God, a very well-known book that his father wrote, and he now has co-wrote uh, the, the new edition with his son, I believe it is. And um, they've been speaking about that topic for years. He speaks on leadership to large groups of churches and home, about the home, and also in the, in the marketplace, which is where I had the privilege to be a part of a group that studied under him for about three years. Um, he lives in Atlanta uh, with his wife, and uh, they have three grown children and eight grandchildren. And um, this is my favorite stat. He has co-written or written 35 books. I have one. I might get one more before I die, but um, it's just uh, amazing that God has gifted him and his whole family, really, to convey truth in a compelling and fresh way. So I think you're really going to enjoy this morning. Uh, Rich, come on up, and I'll play, pray for you before we get you started. So please welcome Dr. Richard Blackaby. Lord God, we thank you for your years of ministry through multiple generations of the Blackaby family and for particularly Richard's gifting and his heart for uh, the church, for, for our culture, for the marketplace. And we just pray that you'll uh, speak through him, that your spirit will uh, guide his words this morning, um, that he'll convey truth in a way that's compelling and new and perhaps challenges us or, or reminds us of, of truth that we know and maybe aren't living out as well as we should. And I just thank you, Father, for, um, for his ministry in my life and in so many others. So, Lord, we bless him and ask that you would be with him during this talk and that our ears would be open to hear your spirit speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. It is good to be with you this morning. I, I've, I've been friends with Mark for a while. I really appreciate his life. And he kept telling me about this wonderful church that he, he went to. But I knew he was from Texas, so I assumed he was exaggerating. But, uh, but lo and behold, he's telling the truth. And uh, what a joy it's been for me just to be in the first service to hear some of your stories and connect with some folks that I've been with before. And uh, just I, I love dropping in. To places like this and just seeing where God's been at work and uh, you, you just represent just a great God story here and so it's my privilege to be with you this morning. One of the things that I get to do in my, I have a really cool job in a sense because I just get to walk with people and help them grow as Christians. Just wherever they are now, I just get to walk alongside them and encourage them to, to, to go from where they are now to where God wants them to be tomorrow. And so it's a lot of fun to get to do that. And one thing I've learned is I've just tried and to try to help people grow as Christians is that we tend to not grow just steadily day by day. It would be great if every day we took another step forward to being more like Jesus, wouldn't it? Just day by day, very steadily over time. But, and maybe that's how you do it. But most of the people, including myself, there, there are stretches of my life where I don't think I've grown very much. I've been going to church, read my Bible. I've basically been the same Richard Blackaby for a while. And then now and then something happens in my life, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and it gets my attention. Maybe I'm just in a church service and the preacher is just unpacking a scripture and all of a sudden my heart starts to race and the Spirit of God just gets my attention and says, pay attention to this, this is for you. And the next thing I know, God just sweeps me up into this time of growth and it's just amazing. And then there's other times where it could be a crisis. 
Maybe you, know, maybe you get sick, maybe you, you get COVID, or you, you lose your job, or you lose a loved one, and, and, and it shakes your world, and, and all of a sudden you just, you're shaken to your core and you realize, I, I, I don't think I'm the Christian I yet need to be. And God just says, well, you're right, and let me help you, take you from where you are to where you're going. And so over the course of my life, I could probably point to particular moments in my life where God got my attention and said, do you want to grow now? And he swept me off into some places I didn't know I could ever go with God. And one of those times was about seven and a half years ago. It was, it was actually the moment I became a grandfather, about seven and a half years ago. Are there any grandparents in the house here this morning? Now, don't, don't reach for your pictures. I don't want to see those. But, but, yeah, that's great, though. Isn't it awesome? Now, see, when people used to always tell me how awesome it was to be a grandparent, I thought they were exaggerating. I thought it was like, you know, they, they probably just had boring lives, and so, I mean, at least they got a grandkid, you know, to kind of spice it up a little bit. But I thought, you know, I've got a great life. I do a lot of things, and I'm sure I'll enjoy having a grandkid, but, like, it's not going to change how I live. It's not going to change my life. You know, just, I'll just add it on to an otherwise great life. Uh, but then I had one, and see, I didn't just have a grandchild. Uh, I, I went from no grandkids at all, and within two weeks, I had three grandsons. I went from zero to three in two weeks. I just believed go big or go home, you know? So it's like, okay, I'm going to be a grandparent. Let's just go, let's be all in. So I had twin grandsons coming first, and then two weeks later, another grandson. They all live right around where I lived at the time, so, you know, I'm going to get to be a part of being at the hospital, doing all those things. And so... About three weeks before this, the twins are to arrive, it's a Saturday morning. And I know I've got three weeks, and, and I'm out, out of town a lot on weekends like this weekend. And so, but, but this Saturday, I'm, I'm home, and it's just awesome. So I'm just kind of taking it easy. Oh, waking up in my own bed on Saturday morning. I'm going to just get some coffee, relax. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call. It's from one of my kids, my son. And I, I answer the phone. He says, Dad. The, the twins, they're on their way this morning. We're, we're headed to the hospital. Meet us there. Now, I don't know what happened. Like, I'm a relatively intelligent person. I, haven't, I have a PhD. But in that one phone call, my brain just went to mush. And I started doing stuff that were completely unlike me. I just, I just hollered at my wife. I said, Lisa, the twins are coming. We've got to get to the hospital. I jumped out of bed. I haven't shaved. I haven't combed my hair. We're running to the car in the garage, jump in the car. I realized, oh, I don't, have my, I don't have my keys. Wait right here. I ran back in the house, got my keys, run back, get in the car. I don't have my wallet. Wait right here. It took three trips just to get out of the garage. And as we're pulling out of the driveway, I look completely out of gas. No gas at all. That was one of my things my, on my to-do list that morning was gas up the car. We're ready for a hospital run. There's no way we'll make it to the hospital without getting gas. So I said, Lisa, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to get some gas. Well, well she said, well, why didn't you fill the car up ahead of time? I said, Lisa, they came three weeks early. Today is ahead of time. I was going to do it today. They came ahead of my ahead of time. And, and, and so I said, but I'll, I'll just get $5. Like she knows me. I'll drive, you know, 20 miles to save one cent a gallon. You know, she's like, you better stop at the first gas station. I don't care how much they overcharge. Just get some gas. Keep going. I pull into the first gas station, whip up to the, the, the pump. I jump out of the car, go to get the, the pump. And it's got one of those covers over it. They're out of gas on that one. I get back in the car, pull up to the next one. We race out of there. And uh, things haven't been going that well so far. But I, I, I'm a little nervous even to say this. But I said, Lisa, 
I, we left so fast, I haven't had breakfast, I haven't, I haven't had coffee yet, I don't know how long this is gonna take, we could be stuck in the hospital for a while, and, and those children, those, those, those innocent little babies, their first sight of me should not be me without coffee. That, that will terrify those poor children, they'll climb right back in the womb and say, if the people on the outside look like that, we're not coming out. So I, I, I just said, but, but there's a McDonald's up there, we'll just, we'll just go through the drive-thru, I, I won't even come to a complete stop, I'll just drive slowly by and say, two coffee and an oatmeal to go. And, uh, and so I, I, I put that order in, and they said, oh, would you just go over to the, the pickup area? We'll, we'll bring it out to you in just a moment. And I won't even tell you what my beloved wife is muttering to me at this point, but we finally get our, 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 our oatmeal, and, and we, I squeal out of that parking lot. We're racing over to this part of town where the hospital is. I can see a big H up above the building. It's right up there. There's a hospital. At this point, my wife is so desperate. She says, don't even park the car. Just drop me off at the front entrance. She said, those kids are going to be in kindergarten before I see them at this point. And so I, I drop her off at the front desk or the front door. I'm looking around. She runs in, doesn't even look back, just gone. And so I, I'm looking at, where do I, where's the parking lot here? How do I, where do I park this thing? And all of a sudden, I see my wife running out of the hospital. She says, this is the wrong hospital. Like, we literally went, I don't know what mush happened in there, but like, I'm just, everything's going wrong. So we, it's an affiliate hospital, but the, the one that does babies is about a mile further down the road. So we race down there. Finally, we get in the hospital, go up to the maternity ward. I run up to this, this nurse at the desk. I said, I'm Richard Blackaby. I'm the grandfather. Where do you need me? Now I assume they'd probably want to gown me up, glove me up, maybe consult with me, kind of get me up to speed on the process. And they, they pointed to a waiting room, said, we want you right over there. I said, excuse me, you must not have heard me. I said, I'm the grandfather. Where do you need me? They said, yeah, we want you right over there. I found out later there's a bigger waiting area where they let normal people wait. But uh, I think they could tell there's going to be trouble with this one. So they put me in a room by myself. There's no one else in there, just a, just a TV with the news on. My wife doesn't want to spend her time in there with me alone. She's, when there's a perfectly good gift shop just two floors down, she's buying gifts for total strangers. She's celebrating and having a great time. And so I'm in this room by myself. The news, it's 24-hour news. And, and if you watch 24-hour news, you know what I'm seeing. This was seven and a half years ago, but there's just been a, a terrorist bombing at a wedding and a bunch of innocent people have been killed. And there's a new war that's just broken out. And there's a new scandal that's just broken out. And there's acts of violence and crime. And, and for an hour, all I'm doing is just watching how bad this world is. And then after an hour of that, I just sense God saying, that is the world those two little boys are entering today. And I've got all this excitement about meeting these two little boys, but I've got a heavy heart knowing what lies ahead of them, what world awaits them. And so then at a certain point, uh, one of the twins is now in my daughter-in-law's hospital room. The other one's still getting some care, but there's one available for handling at this point. And so they finally allowed the grandparents to come in. And I, I, I'm so embarrassed about this. Like, I love my wife. I'm actually very good to her. But at that moment, there was only one grandchild, and there were two grandparents. And I'd waited a long time. And I'm about a foot bigger than my wife. And so, and I played a lot of sports, contact sports. I played hockey growing up. And so I, as we're both, oh, look at that baby. I just step right in front of my wife and just like, she falls into a bedpan. I get hold of that baby. I'm holding the, my first grandchild. And I'm hold, and of course, if you've ever held a brand new baby, I mean, just born just an hour or so before, and you're looking at that child, you're trying to imagine what would their future be like? 
I mean, what, how old will he be when he realizes I'm his favorite human being? And, and, and will, will he, when will he become a Christian? And, and, and will he love his parents? And, and, and will he be, a, you know, just a, a good person? And, and all those kind of questions. And, but I've just got all an hour of watching the news in my, my mind. And I realize as I'm holding this innocent brand new baby that there will be a time where their, their, their school friends are going to laugh, I suspect, at their morals and say, well, why don't you do that? Everybody does that. And they may go to college and have a professor who laughs and says, there is no God. And I began to wonder, what all will this child face as it try, he tries to navigate his way through this world, this life? And then my question was, and, and what kind of grandfather will this little boy need so that when the world comes after him, comes after his heart, comes after his mind, well, what kind of grandfather influence in his life will hold him in place? And when his friends all laugh and say, why, why are you being a Christian? Christians don't have any fun. Christians miss out on all the good stuff. Well, that child say, but my grandfather's a Christian. And if that is what it means to be a Christian, then that's what I want to be too. And when his professor says, there is no God, well, that little boy who's a college student, say, I've heard my grandfather pray, I know there's a God. What kind of influence do I have to be? And in that moment, as I hold, held that baby, I said, I, Lord, I would do anything to be the kind of influence that could hold this young life to stay close to you all of his life. What, what do I need to do? And, and God, God is very gracious, but he's also very truthful. And in truth, he just said, you're not yet the man this little boy needs you to be. But in grace, he said, but I can, I can make you that man. And, uh, and I said, then God, do whatever you have to do. But I want to be the kind of influence for good in this little boy's life that when the whole world might come after him, knowing he's got a godly grandfather praying for him and walking with him and believing in him will be enough to hold him in place. And I want you just to see this morning how crucial it is for those around your life for you to never stop growing, to never say, I've arrived as a Christian. My prayer life is as good as it's going to be. My walk with God's as deep as it's ever going to go. There's a wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus' disciples learn a very important lesson. And, and you know, I, I, I was telling the, the group earlier that Throughout my life, there are those moments where God will show me something in the Bible. I'll see something in the Bible, and then I'll realize, but what I'm seeing in the Bible, I'm not seeing in my life. And whenever that happens, whenever, you might see the power of God in the Bible, but you don't see the power of God in your life. Or you see the peace of that surpasses understanding in the Bible, but you're not experiencing peace in your life. Whenever you see something in the Bible you don't see in your life, just, just keep your life in front of that passage and say, I'm not leaving this passage, God, until what I see there, I'm seeing here. And this is one of those passages that for God, just put my life next to a while ago and said, there's a whole bunch of stuff here that's not yet in you. Just stay there till it is. And so let me just begin. By the way, you know the context of this, this passage is that Jesus has taken three of his disciples with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's, Jesus is meeting with his father, meeting with Moses, meeting with Elijah. 
And I don't know why he doesn't take all 12. I'm sure those mountains could have handled 12 disciples, but he only takes three. And I've always thought, what if you were one of the nine that didn't get to go? Uh, you know, what if Jesus said, hey guys, I'm going to go meet with God, the Father, up on that mountain, and Moses is going to be there, Elijah is going to be there, so, uh, and, oh wait, Andrew, Thomas, not so fast, <laughs> you're not coming. It's like, oh burn, you know, that's kind of sad, but like, so he just takes three with him, the other nine don't get to go up on the mountain. Instead, Jesus says, I want you nine to go to that village and just minister, just keep, keep working while we're up there meeting with the Father. And so nine of them don't get to go up the mountain. So they're in this little village. They're trying to minister. And now Jesus has finished his rendezvous uh, with, with his father. And now they've come back to the village. They're, they're linking up with the other nine. And so in verse 14, that's what we read. They're coming together. And it says, when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Now, as I read this, there's just a couple of truths I think they are just very important for us to realize. And one of those is that there will ultimately come a moment in every one of our lives where we're going to face something that's bigger than us, that's more difficult than us. If you go back in this Gospel of Matthew, you go back to chapter 10, at the very beginning, it, we're told that Jesus gave power and authority to those 12 disciples to cast out evil spirits. And if you keep reading in the Gospels, it tells us that they went out and they were casting out evil spirits, all, all 12 of them. And they're preaching and they're experiencing the power of God. So, so when they have this little boy come to them, it's not like that's never happened before. It's not like they've ever not dealt with this before. Only this time it's more difficult. Uh, they've never faced an evil spirit quite like this one. Um, and, and they're going to now face something that's more difficult than they've ever faced before. Uh, can I tell you, you, some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been there. You faced something in your life that was bigger than you. No matter what you'd done before, no matter what success you had before, you, you didn't have what it took to do this. And, and if you haven't faced that, let me promise you, you will. A time's coming where you'll just simply, can I tell you something? I'll, I'll, I'll share more in a moment, but I've been a leader all my life. I've, I've led sports teams. I've been the captain of high school teams. I've, I've I've led a church, I've led uh, a school, I lead a nonprofit. I've, I've been a leader, I, I'm a firstborn of five si of children, I, I, I've been leading all my life. And I've had lots of problems that have come along the way as a leader that I had to solve. And I don't, I don't say this to boast, but, that, but leader, that's what leaders do. Leaders solve problems, and, I, and I've so been solving problems all my life. The only, I, I've never had a problem come in my door at work that I was not confident I could solve. The only problems that have been bigger than me have been in my home. 
They've been with my family. Where I had to cry out to God and say, I don't have a clue what to do here, God. This isn't like work. This isn't like what I do for a living. God, I, I've never faced anything quite like this. But I've got a, a great friend. He's a business man. Uh, he's one of the most gifted business people I know. Just exudes uh, charisma, wisdom, skill. Uh, he started a company a number of years ago. Year and a half later, sold it for a billion and a half dollars. I mean, just took a year and a half, billion and, and billion and a half dollar sale. Very gifted, very talented. But he's got a daughter who's became a heroin addict, and nothing he did could save his daughter. He'd spend any amount of money, he'd use any resource, any contact he had, put her in any rehab center. Nothing he did for over a decade could help his daughter. And I walked with him when everybody was given up. And he was saying, Richard, I've never experienced failure like this. I've never failed before. And I'm scared to death. My first failure is going to be with one of my own kids. Um, that's what happens here with these disciples. They, they've been having lots of success. And then all of a sudden, this, this man comes up with his son. And, and, and you know that this man, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this was the, the man's only son, the only child. You imagine, you only got one child and he's got an evil spirit. And all of a sudden, the spirit will come upon him and he'll fall into the fire. And the father will be grabbing him out of the fire. Or he'll fall into water about to drown. And, and this man never knows when the spirit's going to come upon him. And it might be in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, he hears a strange noise. And he, he wakes up and he thinks, it's my son. Has he fallen in the fire? And, and he never knows. He lives in fear all the time something's going to happen. And he races all over to every doctor, anyone with a remedy, trying to hope that perhaps they can set his boy free. But every solitary time he's told, your son's case is impossible. And then one day he hears that nine of Jesus' disciples are right there in his little village. And he's so excited, maybe this is the break I've been looking for. And he grabs his little boy and he races through town, makes his way through the crowd, gets up to one of the nine disciples, and he begs him, please, please set my boy free. Now the Bible doesn't tell us which one of those disciples dealt with him. Might have been Matthew, might have been Thomas. Maybe Thomas saw the little boy and, he, and Thomas thought to himself, hey, I, I, I can handle this, this little boy, this shouldn't be hard. I, last week I cast out two evil spirits from grown men, so I, mean, I can handle a little boy. And whatever Thomas does, it doesn't, doesn't help. And I can imagine Andrew saying, Thomas, Thomas, you're always doubting, that's the problem. Let, let, let me show you what I do. Whenever I cast out an evil spirit, I always do this, and it, it's, it's always worked. I, this last week, I cast out a nasty evil spirit. This, this shouldn't be hard, and he fails. Maybe all nine of them had tried, and all nine had failed. And finally, they had to turn to this desperate father and say, Sir, we're sorry. We've done all that we know to do. Your son's case is impossible. And they're ready to move on. They finally face something that was bigger than they could. We, there's no record until this time of the disciples ever not being able to cast out an evil spirit. They've been successful before, but this time it's like, sir, we're sorry, we did the best we can. By the way, do you know what I've come to realize? People don't need my best. They need God's best. I had a person come to my dad one time, and he, 
He said, I've, I've got four kids. All four kids grew up in church. All four kids are, have, are far from God today, far from the church. And then the, the dad said, but Henry, you have to understand, I did the best I could. My dad wasn't trying to heap coals on his head, but he said, maybe that's the problem. We're not called to give people our best. We're called to give them God's best. Did you give them God's best? These disciples did the best they could, and it wasn't enough. And I'll tell you what, that could be a frightening moment in your life when you've done all that you know to do, and it's still not enough. And so the disciples had to make a decision. They basically said to the man, we're sorry, there's nothing more we can do. And you notice what Jesus says in verse 17. It's actually one of the harshest statements you're going to ever hear Jesus make. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Now, you don't hear Jesus talking like that very often, do you? Like, he's got to be really upset, doesn't he? He's got to be disappointed to talk in, how long must I be with you? Unbelieving perverse generation. Now, that's harsh, right? And you've got to stop and say, wait a minute. He doesn't normally talk like that. Why would Jesus be that concerned that he would speak that harshly? And of course, you, you, we, we, don't, we can't see it on film. We don't know for sure who he's looking at, what he's saying. So I, but this is what I, as I've read this, this is what I think happens. I think Jesus re reconnects with his nine disciples. And um, and, and he looks, and, and, and those disciples, they've all got their, their suitcases packed, ready to go. All right, Jesus, hey, glad you guys are back. Where are we going next? Uh, we had, you know, Jesus might have said, well, how, how are things going? Well, it's been a tough one, Jesus. These people, they're not very responsive. They're, we, we've not had the kind of response we've had in other places, but, but hopefully the next village will be better. Uh, down the road, probably, maybe people will be more responsive to our ministry. And, I, and I, I, can't, I just imagine Jesus looking at this boy lying on the ground with an evil spirit. And Jesus saying, well, wait a minute, were you, you going to leave? Were you going to go like, and leave this boy like that? Were you giving up on that boy? And you see, what I've come to realize is whenever I lose hope in God, whenever I lose faith in God, someone pays the price. When I stop growing as a Christian, someone will pay the price. You see, if you'd asked those disciples, is Jesus powerful? He, they would have said, of course he's powerful. How powerful do you think God is? They would have said, oh, he's, he's all powerful. If I were to go around in this room and I were to ask you, how powerful is God? I suspect many of you would say, oh, God is all powerful. He made the universe. He made life. But if I wanted to know how powerful you really believe God was, I wouldn't have to ask you to show me your statement of faith. I wouldn't have to ask you to show me what creed you sign off on or what, what doctrine of the uh, omnipotence of God you believe in. If I wanted to know how big your God was, all I'd have to do is find out who or what you've given up on. What command of God have you quit trying to do anymore? What problem in your life has become so difficult you finally just gave up and said this is impossible. Because anytime you look at a situation in your life and you say this is impossible, what you're saying is even Almighty God could not fix that. 
When you see a prodigal child and you've been praying for years for them to return and they're still not coming back and you say, what's the point of praying? They're never coming back. You've just announced that problem is too big for God. If you've got a marriage in trouble and you're just in conflict and you can't get that marriage healed and forgiven and you're ready to give up on it, what you're saying is even God can't fix my marriage. Or you've got a broken relationship and you've been trying to be reconciled. You're trying to get back with that friend or that family member. And no matter what overtures you make, they just don't respond. They're not interested. I don't want to be right with you anymore. And finally, you just quit trying. You say, look, I've tried for years to mend that relationship. They're just not interested. And so at a certain point, we just want to walk away and say, that's impossible. And that's what these nine disciples were doing. They were walking away and saying, that is impossible. And Jesus was saying, do you understand when you, when you walk away from a little boy, you've just, you've just walked away from someone's child. And every person that you give up on, that represents someone's child that you just gave up on. Maybe you've been trying to witness to someone for years at work. and You tried to share the gospel, they're just not interested. And finally, you just quit trying. You just finally say, look, they're just not interested. I guess there's no point. Folks, I'll tell you what. The world may give up on people. Christians can't give up. When everyone else says, that's impossible, Christians have got to say, no, it's not, because I know God. And with God, all things are possible. Folks, every church I go to, I know that there are people who've given up on something. Maybe it's in their own life. They've had an addiction themselves. They've had problems with anger, with lust, with unforgiveness, and they've tried to overcome it. They've tried to be the Christian they know they ought to be, but they always fall back into their old habits, and finally they just feel, well, when, when I get to heaven, I won't have to struggle anymore, but I guess it's just impossible. I guess I'm just always going to be this way. And they've just announced, my problems are too bad even for God to overcome, and that's what gets Jesus worked up. When his people start giving up on other people. When they start giving up on the power of God. And Jesus was saying, we're not going anywhere till we get this situation straightened out. And then Jesus does what only he can do. And he sets that boy free. And if you notice the end of that story, the disciples turn to Jesus and they say, well, well why couldn't we? Why couldn't we set that little boy free? And you notice what Jesus says? He says, it was never impossible for you. You had the power of God. You just didn't believe. You just didn't believe. Had you believed, you wouldn't have your bags packed trying to walk out of town. You would have been there with that child. You would have stayed with him until he was set free. But you gave up. You gave up. And it costs people every time we give up on the power of God. And I've had to look at the problems and situations in my life to say, even if everyone else says, why don't you just give up on that person? They're never going to change. They're never going to get their life right. If everyone else says, look, I prayed for years. It's never going to happen. Are you that one person who stays in their place, stands in the gap, and says, I still believe with God all things are possible? I... Uh, I've got three kids. I've got two sons and then a daughter. And my first son, I'm a firstborn child of five kids. And so my oldest son, he and I are firstborn males. And so, you know, he's, 
we have a lot of the same, he has a lot of my temperament, a lot of my personality. And so I didn't find it all that hard to raise him. And you know, sometimes, um, sometimes God uh, goes easy on you the first time. For those of you who are parents, I don't know what your experience has been, but, but my first child was, was relatively easy to raise. The problem is, I assumed it was because I was a good parent, that I knew what I was doing. And then the second child is nothing like that first child. He's much more like his mother. And he's a feeler, he's a thinker, he's, emo he's, a, he's emotional. He's a feel, deep, deep feeler. And he gets, he gets upset about stuff, and, and then, he, then he, he can't think straight, and he, he gets all emotional. And uh, that child just was completely different than his brother. And, and after that child, I realized, wait a minute, I actually know nothing about parenting. I just got lucky the first time. And uh, this child is, I, I've tried everything. It doesn't work. This child was always pushing me. He was always pushing me. He just, he just was never easy to raise. It was a battle the whole way for this one. And, uh, and I remember when he was 15 years old, I'm at the seminary. I'm running a graduate school. I get a call from uh, my wife, and she begins a, the phone call by saying, you're not going to like this. And I've told my wife, don't ever begin a phone call that way. But she said, you're not going to like this. Daniel is home in the middle of the day. And he's, he's announced he's quitting school. He's dropping out of school. He's done. And he's got a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions. But he was going through a really difficult time in his life. He's, there's some bullying going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. But he just said, I've had it. I'm not going back. Now, you've got to understand Daniel. Like, he's been trying to quit school for years. Like, when he was in first grade, he decided halfway through like the day that he was just done with school and he, he just went he went home during recess and and after recess the teachers can't find him and, and she panics they have they're having to do a school-wide search for this six-year-old child who's gone missing they have to call the police eventually he shows up at our house crossing several busy streets a six-year-old brand new place we just moved to town doesn't know where he's going but he found his way home by the grace of God and so he just began running home every day like I mean, th th we found out there's a school bedding pool over whether Daniel's going to escape during morning recess or afternoon recess, but, but they know he's going. The teacher even tried to keep him in class during recess so he wouldn't run away. He ran away anyway, just bolted out of the classroom. And so that, that was Daniel. I mean, he, when he was even in college, I mean, he was an English major, and two years behind him was his sister, who was also an English major, and, I would, and whenever she would get a new, new set of classes, I would say, go, in, go into Daniel's room, see if you find any textbooks that, that he had that you, that you need, and you can save me money. Just use his textbook. I remember one time she went and checked in Daniel's room, came back, said, Dad, you'll be thrilled. And she said, I found five books I, that Daniel has that I need. You won't have to buy. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. She said, yeah, and they're still in the shrink wrap. Like, he hadn't even taken them out of the shrink wrap. Like, this child always sort of had a love-hate relationship with school. So when he's 15 and he says, I'm not going back anymore, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, not again, not that child. I've got, I, I'm running a graduate school. I can't have a school dropout for a son. So I, I said, but listen, I'm a, I'm a leader. I, I, I saw problems. I know, I, 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 you know, I saw problems all day. I'll, I'll just tell Daniel, I'm gonna t I, we, we're going to have a talk when I get home. So I get home. I'm standing outside his door. I'm thinking, okay, what's, now I've had years of leadership experience. I've had years of leading, of, of solving problems. So I can handle this. He's a 15-year-old kid. I mean, how hard can that be? So it's like, all right, I'm going to, I know he's, he's a feeler, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to just kind of, you know, just calm everything. I'm going to just stay in calm voice and just, and not get upset. Even though I feel upset, I'm not going to let him know that. And so I walk in and say, Daniel, 
I understand you're having a tough day today. You know, hey, we all have tough days. That's all right. Well, we, you know, this, that's all right. And he's not buying that. He knows I'm upset. He can see right through that. And he just got the wall ready, this emotional wall ready for me. So I thought, well, maybe he just needs to know that uh, I'm, a, I'm a problem solver. So Daniel, obviously you've got problems at school, but, but that's what I do for a living. I solve problems. We can, we can fix this. But he thinks I, I see him as the problem, and he's not interested in me fixing him. So I, I thought, well, okay, I've got another tool here in my tool belt. How about looking forward in the future? If Daniel, if you drop out of high school, let's think about what kind of future you're going to have. And I'm picturing him living on a street somewhere uh, and, and, and panhandling for his lunch. And he doesn't care. He's like, I'll, I'll panhandle, on the, I'm not, but I'm not going back to school. I mean, I'm using all my tools that have always worked at work, and none of them are even phasing this child. I finally I just had to resort to outright bribery. I just said, son, how much do I have to pay you to get you to go to school tomorrow? He said, dad, you don't have that much money. You can't afford me. I'm not going back. I, you, there's no amount of money that's going to get me there. I finally only had one card left to play, and that was the I'm your dad card. So I said, son, I'm your father, and I said you're going to school tomorrow. You're going to school tomorrow. I walked out of his room, closed the door, came around the corner to my bedroom, leaned up against the door of my, my bedroom, and I realized that was the sorriest parenting I think I'd ever done in my life. And I have no doubt whatsoever that child is not going to go to school tomorrow. I failed him. And I remember leaning back and just crying out to God and saying, God, what does that kid need? What does that kid need? I've done everything I know. I've shot every bullet in my parenting gun. Hasn't even phased him. God, what does that kid need? Now, the problem with asking God a question is you have to be ready for his answer. And when I said, what does that kid need, I heard God say, a different father, a different dad. Because the dad you're, you're being right now is just driving him farther and farther away. You keep parenting like that, that child won't want to have anything to do with you. So he needs a different dad. And I, and I realized at that point that uh, he didn't have any other dads to go to. If, if I was not the man of God he needed me to be, he had nowhere else to turn. And so I had to cry out to God and say, then God, do whatever you have to do with me. See, I was praying, God, fix him. God said, I'm going to, but first I got to fix you. I got to work in your life. And when I worked in your life, now you'll be the kind of instrument I can use to work in his life. But we're going to start with you. We just want to pray everybody else to be right. God said, no, let's start with you. And, and, and God just basically said, you know all that stuff that worked with your firstborn child? Yeah, don't do any of that. It won't work on this child. <laughs> let me, let me, my, God literally had to rebuild my parenting and have me do everything different with that child. And it was not an easy overnight process. But I want to tell you something. God did a beautiful work. And that child, a couple of years ago, was going to graduate with his PhD in apologetics. And, uh, and, and he told me when he was graduating, he said, Dad, I know it's in a really busy travel season of your schedule, and you're probably going to be you know, busy traveling somewhere. So he said, Dad, I know you love me. I just telling you, you don't have to come to my graduation. It was up in Louisville, Kentucky. And he said, you don't have to be there. I, I said, son, I will be there. I don't care what I have to cancel. I will be there, and I will watch you walk across that stage because I'll never forget at 15, leaning up in my bedroom saying, There's, is there any hope left for this child? What will it take, God? 
And God was trying to say, listen, with me, all things are possible. And uh, he had, by that time, he had two four-year-old twin boys, and, uh, and, he, uh, and, and, and at one point, the boys were getting pretty antsy. They'd been in there for an hour already, and my son still hadn't walked. And my wife finally turned to me and said, Richard, I think we need to get these boys out of here so that before they disrupt anything. I said, Lisa, I'm so, so sorry, but I'm not leaving until I, you take them, take them out, but I'm staying. I've got to see to the glory of God what God did with my son. That, uh, that was the son who called me seven and a half years ago and said, Dad, the twins are coming. We want you to be there. I'll tell you what, when he was 15, he didn't want me to be anywhere near where he was. But God did a work. And it wasn't because so much God worked in him. It's because God worked in me. And he took me to become the man of God my kids needed me to be. And I don't know what kind of situations your fate, by the way, it's interesting, one of those twins that he has now that are seven is just like him when he was a kid. I'm so, I'm so happy about that. I'm just like, I just say, Daniel, God is a just God, and he's going to return to you everything. And every time his little feeler son just starts going off the deep end, I just cheer him on. <laughs> like, no. Folks, I want to just tell you, we live in a difficult, difficult world right now, do we not? There's a lot going on. If you've got kids, you, you, you're going to work, you, we all are facing stuff that's difficult, that's complicated, that's maybe harder than we've ever faced before in our life. I just want to tell you something. With God, all things are possible. But before God changes your world, it may be he wants to change you. And he wants to take you from where you are right now to the place you need to be. And I'll tell you what, if you're a grandparent, one of the things you may have to be is a prayer warrior for those kids. Those, you, you can't parent them now. You're the grandparent, but you've got to pray. And I'll tell you what, I want my kids to know that when their grandpa gets on his knees to pray for them, God listens and God does stuff. And, and you can't just sort of hurry and try to get your prayer life up to speed when you're Child is in a crisis. You've got to do that now. You've got to be ready now. And so my question to you, I'm going to close in prayer. And just, I just want to pray over each of you. But I want to tell you something. Everywhere I go, people are saying, I'm facing stuff right now I've never faced before. There's stuff in my business I've never had to deal with before. There's stuff my kids are facing at school right now I never dreamed that they'd ever have to face. And it just seemed like the world is so complicated, so difficult. And I would just say, then you have got to keep growing. You can't be the same Christian you were five years ago. If you stay, if you're the same Christian you were five years ago, everyone in your world is paying the price right now because you haven't grown. You have to keep growing because you can't give to others what you don't have yourself. Fill your cup up so everywhere you go, you kind of splash what God's given you on everyone else. Well, let me pray for you, and I'll be done. Lord, thank you for this wonderful church, these wonderful people. God, this is, a, this is a difficult time in which to live. There are so many evil spirits out there on the Internet, in, in social media, in so many places, God. There's so many lies being told to our kids and grandkids, to, our, to us. There's so many pressures right now. Lord, we can't be the same Christians we were 10 years ago. Our prayer life can't be the same that it's always been. Our faith in you can't be what it's always been. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just take each of us from where we are right now in our walk with you, and you would take us to a place we've never been before. Take us deeper and farther 
in our walk with you, in our faith in you, than we've ever been. And God, may we not leave any evil spirit-inhabited children behind because we couldn't believe that you were powerful enough to set them free. Rather, Lord, everywhere we go, may we just leave in our wake people that have been set free because we believed. Help us to be that kind of person in this day where people desperately need to see the power of God that sets people free. Help this church to be filled with people who believe that, and everywhere they go, they set people free because they believe. Help us to be that kind of people even this week. And I would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.